Okay, this is our session number 12, and we will focus today primarily on the kingdom. This is the most, perhaps, important session in terms of the nation of Israel. This is their high point. The high point in Israel's history is the kingdom. But once Israel reaches its high point, then it's a rapid descent downward. And after we look at the kingdom, we'll take a look at the destruction of the kingdom. And that'll be the low point of Israel's history. But before we get to the kingdom, we need to finish up what we started last week, the conquest The extent of the promise of God, the extent of the promise, was never obtained. It was not obtained in Joshua, and certainly not in the time of the judges. And even in the high point of Israel, and this map here represents the empire of David and Solomon, and even it did not occupy the entire land. They didn't occupy this portion here all the way to the Euphrates, but if you look at the table here, they had some influence over this land. God promised from actually the river of Egypt to the Euphrates, so it would include these areas that they did not occupy, Philistia, uh, Phoenicia, and even this portion on the east side there. They have never occupied the full extent that God promised. So here's kind of the judge judge's chronology. We're not going to look at the details. But if you put the Exodus at 1445, the conquest 40 years later, 1405, there's only a short period of time in the book of Joshua where we have the conquest, the record of the conquest, about seven years there. And then there's a little period that we don't have a lot of information, but a consolidation of the nation and a new generation. And that brings us to the first judge, Othniel, in the book of Judges. And we have Deborah, and she's the judge, and Barak, female judge, by the way. Gideon, well-known. And towards the end, we have Samson. And Samson is a fuck. You see, no, basically, you see no spirituality in him as well. He takes a Nazarite vow and violates every aspect of it on several occasions. These are recorded in there. Now, you might say, well, what about, it says about three times that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Well, don't think of the Spirit of the Lord in the same way that you think of the Spirit in the New Testament. It's the same Spirit, same Holy Spirit. But the way the Spirit worked in the Old Testament, it did not necessarily equate to spirituality. In other words, the Spirit fills us when we confess our sin and we are in right relationship with God, then we receive a filling in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you could be a thug like Samson, and because you are God's judge, the Spirit of God would come upon you in order to give you enablement to defeat the oppressors. It had nothing to do with the spirituality of Samson because he had none. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, when it records Samson as a man of faith, It's basically on the day that he dies. That's the only time that he shows any faith in the book of of Judges. And even in the book of Judges, little is said about his, in fact, nothing is said about his faith, even on that last occasion. So, he's a womanizer, he has no regard for spiritual things. God raises him up in order to 
release them from the Philistines, but he shows really very little spirituality at all. So there's a period of the judges, about 300 years, and that leads us to this period that God is now going to work a work that we'll look at when we talk about the kings. So again, we're seeing these cycles of sin. God works a work of grace. What's the work of grace that God does? That's the book of Joshua. He gives them victory over the Canaanites. Victory in relationship to their obedience. But it's a work of grace. They're not deserving of it because even in the midst of that, like at AI, they fail. What's the next uh, step in the cycle of sin? Uh, Sin that begins its corrupting effects. And we even see that even beginning in Joshua, but especially we see it in chapter 1 of the book of Judges. And then what do we see? We see sin begins its corrupting effects. Does God intervene right away? Well, he intervenes in grace, but he continues to, uh, what does he do? What's the third thing? He lets the sin, he patiently endures the sin until the sin reaches its full corruption. And that's what we see in the book of Judges. It reaches its full corruption in the nation of Israel at the end of the book of Judges. And then what's the fourth cycle? God intervenes to, to judge. God intervenes to judge and save. And throughout the book of Judges, we see God disciplining or judging by allowing these oppressors. He saves in those periods, and then at the end, he's going to intervene to work a new work of basically salvation through a new era, and we'll see that next. So we saw the failure of the nation, failure of every tribe. The enemies are mainly local. We see the cycles of sin. Idolatry is the main problem throughout. The violation of the first two commandments. They're just like the Canaanites, indistinguishable. The result and the uh, the refrain that is repeated throughout is this little phrase, they did what was right in their own eyes. That sounds like today in our culture. That's relativism. The peak of relativism. In other words, whatever I det- determine to be right, that's right. What's right for me may not be right for you. That's the way that it was during this period of time. We, in our country today, in fact, the world today, is in a state spiritually much like the children of Israel were at the end of the Judges. Positive is that God worked in that dark hour to turn things around. The possibility of God working in America, that's a possibility. But it may not be likely because there's no covenant. We have no covenant with God. The only reason God intervenes is he has a covenant with the nation, and the nation is not going to be totally destroyed after the period of the judges. Had God left them to themselves, they would have basically disintegrated as a nation. So this is a hopelessly dark period at the end of the judges. And it showed that they cannot rule themselves. Another key phrase is what? There was no king in Israel in those days. Or in those days, there was no king in Israel. And the implication here, remember, who is Israel's king? God was Israel's king. They had rejected their king, therefore there was no king. And they had no king like the other nations. No king, 
And without a king, they showed that they could not rule themselves. So that's the failure of the nation, and this shows what they needed. They not only needed their own righteousness, they needed to turn back idolatry, but they also needed a standard. So they had rejected the word of God, and now they're doing what seems right to themselves. And they had nobody that was above them to rule over them. And the beginning of Samuel, we'll see that they basically rejected God as king. And God gives them a king, and I think he intended to give them human kings all along. So Israel's needs, Israel cannot rule themselves. Shows This period shows that Israel can't rule themselves. They have a need for what Moses described in Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 16, a circumcised heart. That's the New Testament equivalent of regeneration. Apart from regeneration, the children of Israel can't rule themselves. Let's complete our foundation for liberty. We're created free, not in bondage. We lose freedom in sin. It's not as a result of culture. Liberty is distorted by selfishness. We saw that at the Tower of Babel. It's not because of God limiting Government oppresses or tends to be oppressive. It's not the laws. Laws can be good. That's the Mosaic law. It's maintained by God's word. We saw that at Sinai. And that's not legalism because the Mosaic law was intended to be personal, intended to be a heart response. Fifthly, under the judges, we see that it's lost. Liberty is lost by apostasy. And God allows oppressors to basically oppress the children of Israel. That's the lesson in terms of liberty during the period of the judges. Just a desire to just be free of all restraints, libertarianism. So it's not because libertarianism is restricted, it's because of apostasy. God allows just the consequences of sin to bind men, such that they're not free anymore. And we're going to see that it's damaged by the sinful leaders, and it's not by government. That's what we're going to see during the kingdom age, that sinful leaders are going to damage liberty. Liberty can be lost as a result of leaders as well. And that's what we're seeing in our country right now. We're seeing the results of the last two. We're going to lose more and more liberty. And there's more to this liberty that we'll talk about later. So Israel cannot rule themselves. They need a circumcised heart. And the book of Judges tells us of a need for a king. Let's read two of those verses. Linda, do you want to read 17.6? And Randy, 21.25. Very similar. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own. Okay, no king. And God was not their king. Everyone did what was right in their their own eyes. Relativism. Just like today. Randy, 21. This is the end of the book. In those days, there was smoking in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Okay. You could have read the same one in 17.6. Identical verse. So it's reiterated. And it's repeated in other places as well. But those are the two that are the clearest ones. Same song, same verse. That's right. And today... We have the same need in our culture, a need for the Holy Spirit, a need for a commitment to the Word. And we are a very small minority in the culture in which we live in.
So let's take a look quickly to try to answer a couple of issues. First of all, number one, we could talk a lot about archaeology in terms of the the period of uh, Joshua, period of the conquest. Archaeology continues to confirm over and over what we see in the book of Joshua. Let me just give you a couple of examples. For example, number one, archaeology, and this this slide is from Steve Collins, who's doing excavations today, a friend of mine. He's excavating what he believes is Sodom, Tal El Hamam. I won't show you that, but it's across the river from Jericho. All of the cities were very similar in this time frame. And in terms of walls, they were typically walls like this. They were massive. And not only were they massive, but they were impregnable. Is that how you pronounce it? (laughs) Now, this is a reconstruction of the wall at what may be Sodom. Jericho would have had a similar wall. And a lot of the details of these cities are also confirmed by archaeology. For example... And this is another shot. This is of Hatzor. I've shown you shots of it. But notice this is a typical city wall. It's called a casemate wall. And sometimes it would have hollowed areas. And what did we learn about... What's the woman's name? Rahab. Rahab. She lived in the wall. So it's not unusual to have these areas where people could reside in walls, especially towards the top. And this kind of gives you an example of that. And there's a lot of archaeological details that kind of confirm what we have in the book of Joshua. So we can use that as an apologetic. But the main thing that we need to look at in terms of what's going on in the book of Joshua and Judges is this issue of genocide in the Bible, which the skeptic and the unbeliever will raise and throw in your face and basically phrase it essentially... How can a God of love command his people to to do what is commanded? And the answer is not to soften the passages. In other words, don't try and get around it. The passages are clear. This is what God intended. In fact, we'll look at some of them. So let's answer it, and I've got a few points here that we'll look at. Number one, in terms of the Canaanites, we already saw in Genesis 15, 16. Remember in Genesis 15? This is over 400 years before where God basically predicts to Abraham in chapter 15 of the Abrahamic covenant. That's where the covenant is made. And in that, there's that little phrase. Well, before that, it tells them that they'll go into captivity and then they'll come back into the land. But it's not until the sin of the Amorites or the iniquity of the Amorites has reached its full point. In other words, the period of grace for the Amorites, who are a Canaanite people, will come to an end. And it's at that time that God will bring them back into the land. So it's at the end of grace for the Canaanite people. Secondly, it's because of the corruption of the Canaanites. Well, first of all, let's read some of the passages. Loretta, I think it's your turn. Read Deuteronomy 2.34, Connie, Deuteronomy 3.6, Mackenzie, Joshua 6.21, and then Colin, Leviticus 18, 
Mark, Deuteronomy 9, Linda, Deuteronomy 18, Randy, Deuteronomy 20, and Loretta, Exodus 23. Okay, Deuteronomy 2.34. I should have read these at the beginning, but go ahead. So we captured all the east, all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men, women, and children of every city. Okay. Is that the end of it? Uh, we left no survivor. Okay. Utterly destroyed them. Now, this is when they were obedient. Utterly destroying them. Three, six, kind. Men, women, and children destroyed them. Is there any ambiguity there? Pretty clear. Joshua 6.21. Animals as well. Sorry, uh, Loretta. There goes the animals again. <laughs> they always get the worst, yeah. Men and women, young and old. In other words, children and elderly. They were to be wiped out. And even the animals. So, is there genocide? Well, you might use that word, but what we're talking about here, I wouldn't use that word. What you need to use is the word, God is judging the Canaanites. That's what's going on. Because God knows of the corrupting influence of the Canaanites. The Canaanites are different from the Egyptians. The Egyptians would uh, keep a distance from foreign peoples. The Canaanite says, come on in, join in with us. Enjoy our gods, enjoy who we are. And that would serve as a corrupting influence. And we see that, Holland, 1824-27. Or uh, Leviticus, rather, 1824-27. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. Okay. These are the things that are unclean amongst the nations that he's driving them out. The Canaanites. Go ahead. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations. They did these things, and he's going to list them in that chapter. So that the land became unclean. Okay, so the land is basically corrupted. So he wants them wiped out to eliminate that corrupting influence. And it's repeated in several places. Deuteronomy 9.5. You have that one, Mark? It is not for your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. So it's not because of the goodness of the, the Israelites that God is giving him the land. Keep reading. That you are going to possess their land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, it's because he is judging the Canaanites. And that's the point to make. 18, start reading in verse 9, Linda. When you enter the land, the Lord your God you shall not learn to imitate. 
Okay, and you can keep on reading, and he talks about these detestable things. So he's trying to save them from the corrupting influence of the Canaanites. They have to be wiped out. And because they did not wipe them out, the book of Judges shows that the corrupting effects infiltrated the nation of Israel. So there's that danger of contamination. That's the Deuteronomy 20. You have that one? 2018. Then they teach you not to do it after all their abominations which they have done unto their gods. Okay, the abominations of the Canaanite. And fourthly, God commanded them to basically wipe them out. Deuteronomy 7, you got that one? Oh, I didn't give you that one. I gave you Exodus 23, 32 and 33. You shall make no covenants with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For you serve their gods. It will surely be a snare to you. Okay. And you can read on and it kind of elaborates, but God tells them basically to wipe them out because of the corrupting influence, the danger that they will be contaminated. That was Exodus 23:32-33, and the other passage is Deuteronomy 7, 1-2. We didn't read it, but it's similar. Now, you might say, well, there's always grace available. Salvation is always available. And the prime example, we won't read it, but in Joshua 6:12, we read it when we were in Joshua, we have the example of one individual who is not a righteous woman, not even a seeker of God, but realized that uh, Yahweh was the one true God, and she gave aid to the spies, and she showed evidence that she believed that Yahweh was true. So salvation is always available, and had there been others amongst the Canaanites, they could have received God's grace. So in the midst of judgment, there's always God's grace, available, at least. And then finally... What we can say in terms of this period of time, there was a major failure of Israel to follow through on what God had commanded in terms of wiping them out. And we see that, in fact, they were corrupted by the Canaanites and all of the things that God promised concerning if they failed came true. And it became a very, very dark period. So... That's the answer, and and basically the answer to the issue of genocide is it's not genocide, it is God judging the Canaanites. The only difference in this judgment is, for example, in the flood, God used water as his instrument. Sodom and Gomorrah used fire falling from the heavens. In the, uh, the end of Israel's history, he used the Babylonians to judge Israel. It was a judgment. In the case of Joshua, the only difference is God used or wanted to use Israel as his instrument. But it was a judgment on the Canaanites. And if people have a hard time with judgment, and they do, they're going to have a hard time with the whole Bible. And if this answer probably doesn't satisfy the skeptic, but at least that's the answer. I think you said once that it's a model for the judgment at the end of time. Yes, I said that. And also... People um, don't like all the people around them. You try to remove it from them. Yes. It really hurts. Yep. 
So God's will cannot be done in the flesh. That's the story of the book of Judges. That brings us to our next major event, the kingdom. And we might even say that this is not a singular event, but more a period in Israel's history. So it'll include a series of several events, several personages over a considerable period of time. But we group it together as an event because it kind of represents not only an era, but there's several things in common during this period of time that God is doing. So we could view it along with some of the other clear events of Scripture and group it amongst them. So we're talking about a period of time that is described in First Samuel and the first part of Second Kings the period of the kingdom of Israel. And again, we could say that we have all these foundations that are leading up to this period of time, beginning with creation. And that original creation is not the same because of sin, including the material realm, not just humans. The entire universe was affected by the fall. So that's foundational. God's Flood, or judgment, brought as a result of the flood, dealing with sin. God deals with sin, illustrated by the flood. That's foundational. And upon that destruction of that entire generation, except for those that were on the ark, that lays a foundation for the nations that begin at Babel as a result of the scattering. And God rejects the nations because they are not basically godly. They have rejected him, essentially. So he's going to work through one individual, and he calls one man out of the nations. And from that one man, he's going to produce a nation. And we just completed our portion looking at the emergence of the nation of Israel. And in Israel... God intends for them to fulfill the creation mandate. What is the creation mandate? Subdue and rule the earth and rule it through a kingdom. That's the design of the kingdom. But we know that anytime you have men involved, men generically, men slash women, don't want to leave you guys girls out, Whenever we have mankind in view, we have problems, we have issues because of sin. And God's going to illustrate that in the period of the kingdom. So the kingdom is going to reach a pinnacle, but then it's going to have a downward spiral and eventually be destroyed. We'll talk about that next uh, or later. But all of this anticipates an ideal king... And we also have a period of prophets during this period of time that predict the ideal, sinless, future king. We call that Messiah. He doesn't come until the first century, and he is rejected. And we have an interim period of time that he builds a church, but he also promises that he will return, and upon his return, he will do what? He will judge, and he will bring a kingdom that will last a thousand years. Now, he doesn't say a thousand years, but we know from the book of Revelation it will be a thousand-year kingdom. 
when Messiah came, all the prophets of the Old Testament viewed the Messiah as establishing the kingdom, but because Messiah had two functions, one to die, that also is clear in the Old Testament, and one to rule, rather than two Messiahs, as some interpreted the prophecies, we have two comings of one Messiah. And that's made clear by Jesus himself. So, everything that we talk about the kingdom, it's laying a foundation, not only for Messiah, but it's laying a foundation for a future kingdom. And if you understand the kingdom of Israel, then this will help you to avoid some of the mistakes that the church has made historically concerning the kingdom. I think there's a lot of confusion concerning the kingdom and what is the kingdom. And there's probably some confusion in your thinking as well that hopefully we can clarify. And what I'm going to tell you is the kingdom that we have of Israel is foundational to the millennial kingdom and it has nothing to do with the church. The church participates, but the kingdom is not the church. That's a common interpretation. It's been foundational to what we're experiencing now, and what we're experiencing is going to continue till he returns and he establishes the millennium. So let's look at the kingdom. And I've chosen to emphasize God's wisdom as the underlying attribute For a couple of reasons, number one, we're going to see that God has a plan that is wise, that goes back all the way to the creation mandate. So it's it's consistent, it is wise, and also the reason I choose wisdom, it's during the period of the kings, particularly in the age of Solomon, that all of the wisdom literature that gives us what wisdom looks like is actually, most of it was written during that period of time. And it's at the pinnacle of Israel's history when wisdom is observed and wisdom is made known. And it's wisdom that gets Israel to that that point of prominence in world history. So God's wisdom, you could summarize it, Leitner says, God knows how to use his infinite knowledge or Omniscience, God knows how to use his omniscience to best possible end. And he does that by establishing a kingdom that has far-reaching implications, even future from our time. So God is working wisely throughout history, but we can see it particularly during the period of the kings. A couple of verses that indicate that, Isaiah 28, 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. God's wisdom is great. His wisdom is different from man's wisdom. And we're encouraged throughout Scripture to understand God's wisdom as opposed to man's wisdom. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is what? One of the Proverbs? Destruction. Death is one of the passages. So his wisdom is wonderful and great. In the New Testament, Romans 11.33, oh, the depths of the riches. So it's a rich thing, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. So his wisdom is deep. 
And it's worthy. It's like a treasure. It's described like a treasure. It's more valuable than silver and gold. So it is a wise thing to seek his wisdom. And what is the beginning of wisdom, according to the Bible? Fear of the Lord. Exactly. God is being a wise God underlies this period of time. So we have seen in our foundation for history, we've seen the creation, we've seen the fall, the flood, the scattering, Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. And notice there's a consistency, an outworking of the plan of God. After Abraham, we have the Exodus after a period of over 300 years. And then close to the Exodus, we have the law. I date the Exodus at 1445. And we have the conquest. And now they are a nation. And now that they're a nation, God is going to establish a kingdom. And we could date, using the same chronology here, the beginning of the kingdom, basically 1043. This is the beginning of Saul's reign. And on your outline sheet, this is a summary of the outline, where this I call the Old Testament the anticipation of Messiah. That's all the Old Testament. We have the origin of Israel, Roman numeral 1. We just completed the emergence of Israel. They have emerged as a nation. Now they are a nation in the land with a constitution and obviously a common people. And Roman numeral number 3, we're going to talk about the kingdom of Israel. And we'll divide that into parts as well. So the kingdom of Israel, we have what we would describe as the united kingdom. And that's what we'll look at today, which runs from 1 Samuel 1 to 1 Kings 11. And if you have a united kingdom, what might you anticipate be to be divided? Okay, that's a good word. And that would begin in 1 Kings 12. We'll, we'll just look at this portion. And obviously this is a extensive, not only period of time, but there's a lot of passages, so we'll be somewhat selective in what we'll look at there. In fact, we've been selective in the last few events. First major character that we have in First Samuel, first eight chapters, deals with Samuel. So let's look at a couple of passages relating to Samuel. Why don't you begin with chapter 7, verses 3 through 4. Yeah, First Samuel. And while you're there, I'll give you a couple of other verses as well. Before we get into the verses, just a quick biblical history here by eras, I guess you could call. We have the origin of Israel. That's basically Genesis, this period of time. We have the emergence of Israel. It's not an extensive period of time, and even a shorter period of time is this kingdom era. Okay, here's the verses that we want to look at. First of all, Connie, why don't you look at these 1 Samuel 7, 3 through 4. This all deals with uh, Samuel. And go ahead and read these as well. And Mackenzie, why don't you do 8, 4 through 11. Now, before we get to these passages, remember what we said about the judges. This is still the period of the judges. This is the darkest period of Israel's history that the nation has degenerated But now God is going to work a new work, and it actually begins with a focus on a woman who is barren, a godly woman. So there are 
a few godly people, and here's a godly woman that is being tormented. She's married to a man that has another wife, and that other wife, it's never a good thing, so avoid it. She can't have children, so she's tormented by this other wife who's having, who's having children. And this distresses her because in Israel, and in fact in ancient times, the value of a woman basically was measured in terms of family and children particularly. And not to have children was basically a curse. So to be barren was just a terrible thing for any woman. So it's in this period of time, but she's godly and she prays and she dedicates this child to God. And this child becomes a judge. He's also a prophet. And you could say that he also functions as a priest. So he's a godly man, and his name is Samuel. And let's read these verses. We could have read some earlier ones, but notice what it says in First Samuel 7, 3 through 4. Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then commit yourselves in the four gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord in the son of Hamel, and he will leave you out of the hand of you. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and Sophon. Okay. We have a little light here. We have revival. We have a turning. Now it's because they're being oppressed. But Samuel is calling and has influence. And this is a turning point. In other words, this is key to what God is going to do now. Now it's not, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. And there's not a total conversion here. But there's movement in a very positive way. There's a turning to the Lord. Why don't you read verses 7 and 8, chapter 7, and then read 11. There's Mitzvah. Uh, this is the mound of Mitzvah looking from the Jerusalem airport. The Moses and the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because the Philistines. They said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord of God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of Verse 11 says... The men of Israel rushed out of Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Okay. Victory. Implying obedience. Based on what we've already looked at before. Implying there's a return to the Lord. You return to the Lord, you obey Him, you will experience victory. But, not everything is rosy. There's still kind of the flesh. And in chapter 8, in fact, this is a key chapter politically. It has a lot of insight in terms of political insight. And notice what the children of Israel are asking for. Mackenzie, do you have 4 through 11? Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to stand on and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk with your priests. Did you catch that little phrase? That's key. Appoint a king. What did judges say? There was no king in those days. So they want a king. But what's the flaw? Did you catch a little phrase? A king like all the other nations. We, you know, we don't, we don't want to be different. We want to be like everybody else. Yes. Yeah. Charismatic. Yeah. Kennedy. Maybe, yeah, Camelot. 
Keep reading. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected you from being kings over them. And that's key as well. In other words, they want a king, but they don't want the real king, at least yet. Look, there's an interesting thing when they're saying that we want because your sons don't walk in the ways. So they're seeing the kind of a righteousness that you will assemble mm-hmm. and saying, okay, you've been a good leader and you led us in the right way. Right. Your sons aren't doing the right thing, so you think maybe someone else can. Right. Yeah, there's some mixture in there. There's Sammy was not a good father. Right. Something went wrong there. We don't know the details, but we have these little hints there. But in other ways, he was very godly, and he sparked this return, began a new turning point. Had this not taken place, in other words, had we not moved in this new direction, had God not intervened and began a new work, they, I said, would have disintegrated as a people. Okay, let's read. I don't have it up there, but read 9 through 11. Because he's going to warn the people concerning a king. Chapter 8, 9 through 11. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doomed to me. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them, and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So he's going to warn them what it's going to be like to have a king like all of the other nations. So don't take it personally, Samuel. They didn't reject you. They're rejecting me, is what God is saying. So he's revealing their hearts. And what is the warning? Keep reading until you get to verse 11. So Samuel told all the words of the words the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horse when you run before his chariot. Okay, so he's going to build up a military, military complex. And he's going to take your son, so you're going to pay a heavy price. And if you read on, he gives a lot of other detail in terms of what it's going to cost them. It's going to be an expensive endeavor to have a king like all the other peoples. If you want to know where Mizpah is on the map, this is where the passage was introduced to us. It's just north of Jerusalem. This is about 20 miles, I guess, somewhere in that range. So that's Samuel, and the main thing to get out of it, Samuel will be the one that anoints the first kings, first two kings. And the issue of a king is given to us in uh, chapter 8. And now let's take a quick look at Saul. And here's Mizpah again. And let's read these passages. Uh, Holland, you got 10. We're in 1 Samuel 10, 17 through 19. And Mark, get the next one. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered the Egyptians. Notice he keeps reminding, we've seen over and over in Scripture, a reminder of what God has done. There's a principle there. A good principle is to remember what God has done in your life because that's a basis for believing God's word in terms of things that you're making decisions on today. 
He's blessed you in the past. He's done things in the past. He's going to continue to bless you as you are faithful to him. So the reminder of God's miraculous working, bringing them out. Keep reading. Um, and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing me. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your tents. Okay. And what they're going to do is they're going to anoint the king. God's going to give them what they ask. Be careful of getting what you ask. If it's not good, God may use it to turn around on you. Chapter 12, 19 through 25. Now, let's see. So the anointing takes place at Mizpah, and they receive a dynamic king that is taller than everyone else. He's an attractive king. He was. He is what you would think of when you think of a king. Dynamic, above everyone else, probably intelligent, probably very vocal, probably very visible. But there's a problem here. Chapter 12, 19 through 25. You got it, Mark? And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have... You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from the from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You must not turn aside, for then you would go you would go after futile things, which cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear of the Lord will serve him in truth with all your hearts. For for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. Okay, so we have, first of all, the confession of the people recognizing they have sinned, But we have a lot of assurance. God is working. Now, it doesn't mention the Abrahamic covenant, but God is continuing to move to fulfill what he had promised in the Abrahamic covenant. So there's great assurance. And here's another shot of Mishpah, at least uh, archaeological excavation there or exposing of a, a wall. Iron Age is about David's time. And just to give you a summary here, a reminder of the conditional aspects in terms of Saul. Saul could have been a great king. God would have blessed him. His kingdom is conditional. And this map just basically shows the extent of the kingdom of Israel under Saul. But let's read 13, 13 through 14. Do you want to read those two, Linda? This is First Samuel. And Randy, why don't you look up 15, 17 through 19, and also read verse 26. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment. That's what he asked to disobey. Yep, he did something bad. Right. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God. For now, the Lord would have established your kingdom forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself. Ooh, a man after his own heart. And the Lord 
And the Lord is appointed him as a ruler over the people you have not kept. Okay. And if you read the prior context, God basically promised Saul that he would bless his kingdom if, in fact, he abided by the Mosaic Covenant. And Saul did not. We actually have the rise of Saul, and then we have the decline of Saul. The rise, chapters 9 through 12. And then we have the reign, chapters 13 and 14. And then we have basically the ruin of his kingdom where everything goes downhill, chapter 15. And that's that's 15, 17 through 19. Get that? And Samuel said, when you were little, on your own sight, were you not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed Israel? The Lord anointed him king over Israel. So he had all of the privilege, all of the blessing, all of the potential. Keep and reading. the Lord sent you on a journey, and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and against them. Wherefore then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, and fly upon his oil, and he will have been the Lord? Then verse 26. Verse 26. Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you all Israel. Okay. The Lord has now rejected Saul. That's the king like all the nations. So you could summarize Saul as the king like all of the other nations. And God rejects him. And in that context, we also saw that God's going to raise up a new king. So that leads us to our first implication here. And let's answer the question. Uh, the kingdom all along is God's idea. God intended there to be kings... I think the difference is, is he wanted a king that would be different from all of the nations. He wanted Israel to be different from all of the nations. They wanted a king like all of the nations, and they ended up with a king that was like any other king. But the whole idea of the kingdom is God's idea. And let's take a break, and we'll come back and look at God's idea in terms of the kingdom. Question that sometimes is raised, did God intend for Israel to have kings? He, we saw from Saul that there was a problem with Saul in that it almost seems that Samuel is saying they want a king rather than you, God, as their king, and that's true. And, and yet there are indications from scripture that God intended kings all along. And I think kings and the kingdom are God's idea. And what Saul is, is an example of a king after the flesh, or a king like the other nations, is the way that the text tells us, which God did not want. And I think God intended kings all along for the following reasons. Number one, God's design... All the way back in Genesis chapter 17, we won't read the passage, but if you go back to chapter 17 in the uh, book of Genesis, this is another passage that gives us the Abrahamic covenant. And when God promises the descendants, and let me give you the verse on that. Do you have it handy? 16, is that? 6 and 16. If you have them already, go ahead and read them. Okay, Na- a nation from you and kings. Okay, a nation from you and kings. Okay, a nation from you and kings. 
Okay. So even in the Abrahamic covenant, God promises that there'll be kings. That's part of God's design. So the problem is not a choice between God as king. Now, he wanted to be king, obviously. But he also intended to delegate that authority through human kings. And we have that in the Abrahamic covenant. So we could say that it's part of God's design. Secondly, the Mosaic law gives specific instructions concerning the kings. That's Deuteronomy 17. And it's very specific. This is before they're even a nation, before they have the problems of the judges. It specifies very specifically the king is to obey. In fact, he's to read the Mosaic Covenant every year. He's to abide by it. He's not to accumulate uh, armies. He's not to intermarry. He's not to do all these things, which none of the kings abided by. But they're specified. And you can read in Deuteronomy 17 the specifications for kings. And we also have the lesson from history. Remember that recurring theme, particularly Judges 17, but we also saw Judges 21, there was no king in Israel. So we saw the results politically and in terms of culturally. The nation can't rule itself. The nation needs a centralized ruler. Now it needs God, first of all, but God oftentimes uses individuals, like he used Moses, he used Joshua. And God, according to the Abrahamic covenant, intended to use kings. So we can see that from Judges 17 and other passages as well, 18, 19, and elsewhere. Now, in 1 Samuel 8, we mentioned, and we read a little bit of that, in 1 Samuel 8, most of the chapter puts restraints on God's kings, or Israel's kings. So I think that it's God's intent all the while that we have a kingdom, and he envisioned a kingdom because the kingdom of Israel, and we might even talk hypothetically, what if the kingdom of Israel was successful? It potentially could have led to the ultimate kingdom, but it failed. And in the failure, we have predictions concerning the ideal ultimate kingdom, but it does set a pattern for that ultimate kingdom, which we'll get into. And that's the most important aspect of what we'll talk about today. So Saul is a king like all the other nations. He's a king of the people's choice. David comes to the forefront in chapter 16, 1 Samuel, through this portion, 2 Samuel 24. David is prominent. He's the king after God's own heart. And let's look at some passages relating historically to David. And, Mackenzie, do you want to do 16.1 and 4? And you might as well read 13 and 14. This is First Samuel again. And while well, she's looking that one up, you want to do 17.20. And Mark, do 17.1 through 4. And I'll give you some other ones. Linda, do 18. These are all in First Samuel. Randy, 27. Okay, 16.1. The Lord said to Samuel, 
How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Okay, so the rejection of Saul, and now we're going to have a new king. Keep reading. Four. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And then skip 13 through 14. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Rome. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and harmed the Spirit of the Lord from it. Okay, so we have the transition. Now again, remember, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is different in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. I've already indicated one of the differences. Here's another difference. Another difference is the Holy Spirit came on individuals, and sometimes the Holy Spirit would leave individuals. And in this case, Holy Spirit was within Saul, but after he was rejected, the Holy Spirit left. That's different from the New Testament, where on the day of Pentecost, from that day, birthday of the church, the church indwells believers and never leaves. So there's a different way that the Spirit works in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. A radical difference. In fact, Pentecost was a radical change there. But anyway, so we have the Spirit leaving. We have the anointing of of David. And it's at Bethlehem. And just to give you some visuals, this is modern-day Bethlehem in the background there. And about 15 miles, good bike ride from Jerusalem. Stop at a checkpoint across the into the West Bank there. And obviously Bethlehem uh, was not only a place where David was anointed, but also ultimately the ultimate David would be born. And there's prophecies concerning that. And uh, under Arab control today, this is a marketplace and a street, and you have to go through a checkpoint, and usually if you're doing a tour of Israel... Your tour guide usually has a contact that's an Arab that will, if you are able to go into Bethlehem, then they'll turn you over to Arab-Palestinian guide and they'll show you around the city. 1720 through, start reading and we won't read the whole passage. And Pharaoh rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion of uh, the Philistine of Gath, the lion by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Okay, that tells us about an incident. This whole passage is basically establishing David as a worthy king, as a mighty warrior, even though he's just a young kid, basically. But he's demonstrating skill, he's demonstrating basically God's enablement, and he's demonstrating that he's worthy to be Israel's king. 